welcome to Who's Next, a podcast about lifting people up to celebrate them and for others to learn from. At the end of each interview, I ask my guests who's next, giving them an opportunity to nominate someone they know and find inspiring. My guest for this episode is a talented Dina Gornick, an executive and board level coach, facilitator and writer. And since recording this at the back end of 2019, we've become good friends too, albeit remotely. I have a number of interviews like this one that were recorded last year that I've yet to release as other priorities have had to come first. But it's been exciting to listen back to these conversations and reflect on them with a new light, especially after the challenges of 2020. In this episode, we discuss how Dina found her calling as a coach, how she started out as an actor, but soon discovered that she enjoyed helping other people to perform and find themselves much more. We actually ended up chatting for hours, so it was really hard to cut this interview down but it's still a meaty and interesting discussion about courage, creativity, and most of all, the search for confidence. Welcome, Dina Gornick, to Who's Next Podcast. Thank you. I love how I'm saying that as if we haven't been chatting for about <laughs> half an hour already. <laughs> but to have a proper start, I am delighted that you're joining me here, so much so. I, I, I'm sure you are aware, and I'm sure you've been given this feedback, but when you enter a room, when you start talking, there's like such amazing energy that I think people must be drawn to you like a kind of, I was going to say moth to the flame, but that's definitely the, the wrong thing. You're not, you're, you're not dangerous. You're not going to kill me, I hope. Oh, no, that's lovely. No, that's more than lovely. It means a lot to me. Thank you. Um, but I thought there is no introducing Dina. I want you to be able to say, kind of, how did you come to have this amazing job that you clearly love so much? And maybe tell me a little bit about it. I really began my life as a performer and, you know, I I wanted to be a performer from the time that I was about 12 years old and didn't really know as I was accruing performance skills that actually in my later life, well, not so late, in my late 20s, performance for me was going to become not nearly as interesting or uh, as exciting as it has become to facilitate other people being able to perform, but not act, but to be themselves. Because I think my journey, my personal journey, has been about learning that myself, that I didn't need to perform to get the things like fulfillment and joy that I thought I, that performing would bring me. Luckily, I failed at, at the career of performing, and I failed because I think I'm better at this than I was at that. And I think the life of a performer was way too difficult for me. The challenge of it was phenomenal in terms of earning a living. And so in the pursuit of supporting myself as a performer, I started facilitating other people who weren't performers to stand up in front of people or sit in an interview and not sweat. And I think the craft of that was born out of my own stage fright. I mean, I had terrible stage fright and it grew to be much more terrible the more professional I, pro professionally I got involved in, in the world of, of theater. And I did it in a terrible city. I mean, I was in Los Angeles, which is, for a, a young hippie girl <laughs> to be trying to pursue a career as an actress in a city that is whatever the antithesis of hippiness is, even though there's lots of 
California hippies, they really don't make commercials and TV shows and films. Or if they do, they certainly have to subvert their hippie. And I didn't like subverting my hippie very much at all. It was not me. It was not a world that I that fed me in the way that the world of coaching and facilitating does. And it is humbling and an honor, and I mean it, it is an honor to use my skills as somebody who can present themselves to use that skill as a way of enchanting people to get out of their comfort zone and understand that they can be as confident as the next person. And it's so much more fun than acting. <laughs> it really is, genuinely. I saw um, a TEDx youth talk that you did, and you were talking kind of at that early stage before you went into the big bad world of acting professionally that actually... At, were you at UCLA? Yeah. You were incredibly successful. Mm. You were in every production, kind of front and centre stage. So you describe a fear building up because of that early success and going out there into the world and, and experiencing either some rejection or some failure, as you describe it. I think you, you can get quite competent people who are very brilliant who then have this immense fear. How did you go from having that fear to then this journey, however many years later, of helping people overcome their fears? It's a great question. And also, I want to answer it, but I want to go back to something that you that is incredibly insightful, what you've just fed back about my past, because you use the words rejection and failure. Well, they to me, they feel the same. Because when you... I got so used to being, well, you got it, you know, as you said, just every day. I was a star at UCLA. You're still a star. Well, thank you. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, a little bow there. <laughs> <laughs> but going into the world and being rejected time and time again after being fought over by directors at UCLA it felt like, Failure doesn't cover it. I mean, it just felt like the the ground was swallowing me whole. It just felt desolate. It was an awful, awful time, very dark time. And when I was my least um, psychologically resilient, I mean, who's resilient at the age of 21? Incredible. It was really, really tough. But I think what happened... Um, I think all of me was so bound in, in, in overcoming this terrible failure, horrible, shameful failure. Everyone in my family, all my friends thought that I was going to be, I thought I was going, we all did, <laughs> that I was going to be the big I am in, in the world of, of theater and film and television. And I was as antithetical to that as you could possibly be. And I came to Britain dressed up as I was going to go to a graduate program. I told everybody that. And I even told myself that. I even signed up to go to one and went to it. But I think I was doing something so much deeper. I, I met my father for the very first time when I was 18 years old. 
and had an incredibly painful childhood, really very, very painful. And, and has, um, I was adopted by my mother's brother and his wife, my aunt and uncle. My mother was very much alive and, and very much a part of my childhood. But my brother died when he was three and I was one. And it created, my mother, to make a long story short, she had a nervous breakdown. So I was taken away from her along with my biological sister. And we were both raised in a household with three cousins and an aunt and an uncle in a, in a, in a very foreign land. Because any land that isn't of your biological parenting is pretty foreign. I mean, some people I know find their biological parents foreign lands. I didn't. I mean, my mother was, um, and you know, until she died, an ally and a dear friend. And my aunt and uncle were good people. But as any adopted parent, adoptive parent will tell you, it is a journey to feel a part of an adoptive parent's life. And I think, if I'm 100% honest with myself and you, um, theater was a family that I belonged to. So I think I held on to it longer because of that. And when I came to Britain, I came to be with my father because he lived here. He still does. He's now 88 years old. Biological father. And I wanted, I felt that, and I, I don't think I could have consciously articulated it like I can now, but I think I felt that getting to know him would allow me to make peace with myself. Did it? No. No. I made peace with myself because I had 20 years of therapy and sat in a room with a very wonderful woman for 20 years and got to know who I was a little bit better than I did then. Getting to know my father helped me put a myth to rest and made me realize that the knight in shining armor... He wasn't the answer. He wasn't. Bless him. He really... He so wasn't what I should have realized, but you don't when you're in your early 20s, that a man who wouldn't know his children probably wasn't going to be the answer. And of course, no one is ever the answer except for the person who's carrying the question. You know, it uh, took me 50 or so years to know that, but that, that is the truth. Mm. You've had this rejection from the acting. You've, you've experienced someone not being quite what you, you wanted them to be or hoped that they would be. How did you kind of hit this low and then have this trajectory that was into helping other people um, become f performers, as you say? Well, I think I think soon as I... So I did a year, I did a postgraduate diploma at Weber Douglas, which was this big drama school um, in uh, South Kent, which I'm very glad I did because I met some lovely people. And it, it started me on a full stop to the theatre. Um, I had an experience, which I've told very few people about, actually. I, I went back to the United States on a visit shortly after finishing at Weber. 
and um, my aunt's mother, so my adoptive mother, her mother, who I called grandma Mm -hmm. and felt very much like she was my grandmother. And she was a very cultured woman and um, I had a, a lot of respect for her. She was um, involved in Hadassah, which is a, uh, a Jewish hospital uh, in Israel run by a women's charity, Hadassah, um, all over the world. And she, her chapter, she, there was a speaker coming and there was a big luncheon to raise money for the hospital in Israel. And uh, my grandmother invited, she really wanted me to come to, to hear this speaker, whose name I do not remember. Um, and my aunt and I got all dressed up and we went that summer, uh, afternoon to this luncheon and we're at the table with my grandmother and she is tapped on the shoulder to get up and she comes back ashen and she looks at me and she goes, you've got to help me. I said, grandma, grandma, what is wrong? What's wrong? She said, blah, blah, blah. The woman whose name I don't remember is ill. I and she can't come. And and there were about 80 elderly, cultured women sitting in round tables, eating their luncheon. And she was just freaking out. She was absolutely, she said, you've got to do something. And I said, Grandma, what can I do? She went, I don't know. But you can do something. Just do something. Perform. Do something. You're an actress. Do something. And I... I realized that I had to, that she was in trouble and that I, if she thought I could do something, I probably could. I had a clue what it was. I sat there very slowly and the conversation continued over lunch and grandma pretended that everything was fine uh, with all the other ladies and we were sitting there eating our lunch, which I'm barely able to eat because I'm thinking. And then I and then I, I turned to, to my grandmother and I said, yes, I have an idea. I have an idea. I can do this. I'll do this for you. I can do this. Oh, she said, thank God, thank God, thank God. I said, do you want me to tell you what I'm going to do? She said, no. I trust you. Just, I know you'll do it. And so I quickly talked to my aunt about what I thought I was going to do. And then I, my grandmother came up and she introduced me. And I took the mic and I said, I'm going to talk to you about the difference between American theater and British theater and method acting and technical acting. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the differences. Then I'm going to do a monologue in each style. And then afterwards, we're going to, I'll take questions. And I did that. And the questions were pieces of poetry. I learned so much from their questions and engaged so deeply that I kind of forgot that this was a monumentally difficult task and fell in love with every single woman who asked a question and fell in love with the room. And it was, it was a breathtaking experience for me. And, and they seemed to enjoy it a lot. I sat down dripping with sweat, absolutely dripping with sweat, sat down at the table at the end. And my grandmother took my hand and she said, you're a teacher. You're a teacher. And I thought that was more fun than acting. 
much more fun. It was so fun not having a fourth wall. It was so fun having my brain opened up by these incredibly intelligent elderly women who were just curious. I thought, God, when I'm 80, I want to be that curious. It makes me curious. And so I came back from my holiday in America, back to Britain, and um, I started just teaching friends who were studying to be things that other than actors and waitressing and still trying to be an actor. And every time I worked with somebody, they would always say, "Good, you're, you're good at this. You should do this. And then I got a job teaching um, voice at Lewisham College, working with kids, kids from really challenged areas. I fell madly in love with teaching. I just thought, because what teaching for me, teaching was unlearning every piece of nonsense that I'd ever learned and helping people unlearn all the silly nonsense that they had learned. Teaching is really good teaching, and I think is unlearning people, you know. And, you know, these kids were like, oh, I'll miss. And I kept saying, please don't call me miss. Miss is something you do to a bus on a bad day. And, <laughs> and I did it for five years. And then um, I thought, okay, it's time to earn some money. I led a workshop which was called Performing for Non-Performers, a weekend. There was a place called the Actors um, Institute. It no longer exists, but it was a place where they led a course called The Mastery. It was one of those, go away for a weekend, change your life, and everything's marvelous. But they also did ex auxiliary courses, and I asked them if they would, if I could do it there. So I had this idea. Twelve people signed up, and one of them, I never saw her face, because everything I wrote, I said, she wrote down. And she came to me at the, on the Sunday night. You always have tea and coffee at the end. And she came to me at the end and she said, um, I came here to steal your ideas, but I'd rather steal you. Um, quite I'm... honestly. <laughs> it's great. Great. And she said, I, I'm, I, I have a consultancy that I'm starting with my husband. I didn't know what a consultancy was, but I nodded my head sagely because I wanted to pretend that I was, you know, savvy. <laughs> and um, she was uh, an amazing woman called Sue Harley. Wherever she is, I hope, the sun is shining radiantly upon her because she was a catalyst that changed my life. And she hired me to work with her on a two-day women's leadership course a long time ago with her company, which was XL Communications, which still exists, again, to whom I'm exceedingly grateful. And she started me out on, an, on a very low pay, which for me was tremendously high, <laughs> being an actor. Anything with more than two digits, when you're an actor, especially a young one like that, felt like, you know, a gold mine. And um, basically, we worked together, and then she paid for me to be trained in NLP because they were a neurolinguistic programming company. And I thought, my this is my world. And in fact, I had an agent and she and I were doing a course in Liverpool uh, for some asthma care nurses on assertiveness. 
because that's another thing that I had been trained in via Sue. And we were doing it together. And my then partner got a hold of me because mobile phones didn't exist in those days and said, um, your agent has been trying to ring you. He has the most amazing interview for you in London tomorrow. You have to go. And I go, well, I can't go. I'm, it's day two of a training. So I phoned my agent. My agent said, you've got to get down here. It's a dead cert. It's the most amazing cinema advert for, you know, lots of money. Amazing. And uh, I said, I'm not going to come. He said, why not? I said, look, John, I could get this job. It's, you're right. They want a sassy New Yorker. Yeah, good tick. It's a lot of money. You'd get a lot of money. I'd get a lot of money. But I would never work again in a profession that I think has my name on it. So I'm going to say no. And he said, well, you have to decide what you want to do with your life. I went, I think I've just decided. And I came back in the room sort of shaking, realizing that I had absolutely severed a tie with, certainly with my agent and probably with a profession that I had given a long time to. And then at the end of that day, I told Sue exactly what had happened. And she said, wow, thank you. I never would have known you had that kind of a thing. And then the next day I came home and they did Sue and her team sent me a bottle of champagne to thank me for my professionalism. And the next day after that, in the post, all my CVs and headshots from my agent came with a comp slip. And I thought, thank you, universe, for leading me on this path. It was almost like you had the... I don't know, the profession of acting as a family and that was like goodbye to one family and hello to Sue and the new, like literally champagne welcoming welcoming you to the new family of coaching. What a, Zara, that is such a nice way to put it. Like, yeah. It's quite nice that it was a direct transition as well. <laughs> I feel like sometimes people fall between the gaps of having support networks and and people around them who are willing them along or sometimes families, not so much, but yours was you realised that he wasn't as invested in you and what you wanted, but you'd found someone straight away who was. Wow. It's, 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 it's lovely and affirming having that fed back to me. Of course, it, at that, it felt like falling into a whirlpool at the time, but the champagne was such a symbol to me. Of, um, I, and, I, and, and for somebody who who recognized how tumultuous. But your way of, of reframing it is very useful. Obviously, Sue was a great support to you then. What kind of support systems have you had? So you said your kind of childhood actually was maybe quite challenging with your your mum having those experiences and, and kind of you having to move to your aunt and then with your dad. Um, and quite often people fall back as a family as their main support system. So kind of through your life, like where have you got your support from i have um been blessed with phenomenal friends phenomenal i have um my flatmate at university 
peace. Just a great fan, a wonderful cheerleader, a critical. He's he's, he's nine years older than me because he was getting his, Michael was getting his master's when I was getting my undergraduate degree and we became almost instant friends. He's a breathtaking theatre director and now producer. He produces phenomenal theatre in um, Florida in a one of the last remaining repertory theatres in America and a very important one called Oslo Repertory Theatre. It's breathtakingly good and a lot of his shows transfer from there to, to Broadway and he is just this sort of brain, articulate, shockingly, irritatingly well-read, pedantic, bossy, and probably why the closest thing I think I probably had, without wishing to sound sick, but the closest thing I probably ever had to a father. But he's not a father, he's not a brother, he's just a pal. He's a great guy. I mean, from my first years in London, where I was so ridiculously alone, he would fly every Christmas to be with me so that I wouldn't be alone at Christmas time. That's so nice. I know. I know. Did he have a family then? In, in he America? has a fabulous family. He comes from one of those huge Catholic families. See, I come from one of those Irish huge... origin? <laughs> yes. <clears throat> uh, yes. But Australian now. Um and I come from a huge Jewish family, but he was very, they were very, very, my family is very family oriented, it's massive, but I felt like such an outcast from it for such a long time. I don't now. I think getting old has helped me see mm. what was really going on, but I did then. Oh my God, I felt so, such an outsider in my family and wanted to be as far away from them as possible. Mm until I found out who I was. And then I could, you know, appear to them and, and be with them. But I that, that took a long time. What's so nice, though, is that he had his loving family, but then chose to come and be with you at Christmas, which is just so nice. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it, it really is. And it was, because uh, Christmas is such a mm. heavy, loaded isn't it? I mean, it has, just has so much agenda. So much expectation. Yeah. It's meant to be a family holiday, but then it, that doesn't really cater for people who have challenging family relationships. And yeah. It's a very, for me, it was it, my mother, when I was a very young child, Christmas was mm. delightful because raised Jewish, she didn't have Christmas, and like a lot of us Jews who didn't have Christmas, we go mad. And she did. <laughs> like Christmas. <I> mean, <laughs> well, she, she didn't even bother with the cup. We just, you know, she was a hippie in sixties, you know, early sixties New York, who had rejected her family, um, and uh, you know, we had a, and she, we were on welfare. My mother had no money at all. Um, she was a single mother, you know, in nineteen sixty. Well, I was born in 58, so then, um, and she had two little girls. And so we had, we lived in a tenement and had cr a Christmas tree in our bedroom, which we just thought was just. That's cool. Fantastic. <laughs> and we made all the 
you know, ornaments and Santa came and there were hippies, hippies for dinner and, well, we didn't eat them, but we <laughs> ate with them. And it was, <laughs> it was marvelous. And then to go from that to blam, suddenly nothing, uh, but Hanukkah and, and the menorah and five children opening um, token gifts every night. It just didn't feel the same. Mm. And like uh, you said, it was like a different land. Like a even, different, yeah. yeah, a different land. So then to 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 be in Britain where Christmas is a phenomenal thing mm. and and to have this lovely man, my dear friend, come in those formative years in a strange land that I loved, but it was a land. It's still a strange land. <laughs> All lands are strange. Yeah, but your your country is a marvelous country, despite mm its current tensions which mm. are nothing compared to the ones in my country of origin mm. we're all in the west we're all split apart but you have a beautiful country you have a much more benign and softer country than the one that i was born into where's michael now michael is now in or in in um, sarasota yeah running his fabulously successful theater absolutely committed now to being a producer he no longer directs he um was uh is still the artistic director and overseeing you know in a land florida come on not exactly mm. the great stronghold of liberal america but really holding a thinking intelligent repertory theater in a country that has no arts funding you know, uh, and running it very successfully, not only financially successfully, but artistically, intellectually, and politically successful. I mean, it's breathtaking what he does. I'm extremely proud of him. I'm sure he's proud of you too. He is. He makes that very clear almost I love, every time um, I talk to him. You said uh, critical cheerleader. That's so amazing. Like, that you know you'll get honest feedback, but also that he's got you and he'll support you. Oh, yes. Which is brilliant. He um, is a fellow values-led person. What What are your values? Well, my first and foremost deepest value is fun. Excellent. I can t so tell that. So to give some context that I think this is maybe illustrates how fun you are, um, in a TEDx talk, to illustrate a point, you lay down on the floor, <laughs> which I think is just such a lovely like hilarious way to illustrate that you wouldn't just lie on the floor if you're trying to communicate with someone and have presence um but the audience clearly resonates and that's such a fun way to illustrate the point you could have just, you. yes I just loved it um I can so see that fun is one of your core values it's you know it's it, it really is um I I've been through hell and a handcart and I think the thing that has got me through is is just not fun as a veneer or no. fun as a cover-up, never know. But there's, you've just got to laugh. It's so important. It's really important. And I, I run it through all my coaching relationships. I run it through every workshop, every talk. Because when you are having fun, you learn really fast. Mm -hmm. Because all your muscles relax. And you just, you can build the really important things that you need to build when you're scared, like trust and rapport and relationship. So you learn it faster. Because your mind's almost open. Absolutely, absolutely. Your mind is 
open. And it, it you know, because your body's relaxed or all your, your mm-hmm. tension is. So fun is just so important. And I think, and my other value is, you know, unlocking people to who they are. Kind of empowering. Yeah, I, I just, watching people go, you know, just shifting and getting, oh, yeah, I'm gorgeous. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is just breathtaking to me. I love it. What brilliant values to go together. Like, because fun also is good for you and good for your health. <laughs> but also it's good for other people too. They're both um, values that help you live live your values and and kind of live your best self. But it also is almost outward facing both of them which is really lovely Mm. what a great person you are (laughs) well i i believe me i i i i I, thank you and and it it, it, it's been hard Mm. because i i think tenderness is also a value of mine i come from a really hard country and i come from a very wonderful family but my family my adoptive family they were toughies Mm. and I'm not and I don't want to be you know I kind of started at the beginning saying you have this like amazing openness that kind of draws you in and I think vulnerability and tenderness people are drawn to it because everyone wants to be like that but it takes a certain level of confidence to be able to actually be honest about being tender and actually saying that rather than having that veneer sometimes a veneer of fun I am rather cringely, I think I wrote down a quote that you said. I do not believe in confidence. I don't believe in waiting for confidence to happen. Do what you want to do now. Mm, I believe that very strongly. Which I love. Um, So I know you've done a lot around imposter syndrome and confidence and, and obviously your job now, today, all these years later, after finding this passion for helping people unlearn and learn, uh, learning to teach, but then learning it could be even extrapolated further than just teaching but actually kind of helping and coaching um how how do you help people with confidence when it's something that everyone has their own demons like what's your kind of approach to that now well you know the quote that you just read is is absolutely true it's something I live by I know that you and lots of people who've worked with me and seen me speak I know that they think that I am confident. And you really have to believe me that I'm not. Not in the sense that I think you and other people think. You know, that I think confidence is so often confused with comfort. And the two are completely not bedfellows. They have nothing to do with each other. I have a real ability to have eye contact and to breathe, and to allow myself to to be in the moment that I am in. I've taught myself to do that, largely because I taught myself to do it as a performer so that I could exist on stage without vomiting. (laughs) But it has stood me in very good stead to stand up in front of groups and talk and to be with people that I don't know and to put a lot of attention onto other people. And I know that that is often perceived mm. as confidence. But it's dealing with however you're feeling, whether it's confident or not. It's dealing with, yes, like, okay, right now if I'm speaking to, and in my world I speak to a lot of people with a lot of three-letter abbreviations after their names. A lot of them are male 
and older and powerful. And so I'm just like everybody else and, and get intimidated. But I have an ability that I have taught myself and that I teach to breathe, to sit up, to allow my body to be unencumbered by my arms and to really own my space. And what is incredible that happens when that happens is that the people that I'm with do treat me like an equal and I do the same to them. But I refuse to own that I am confident. I get scared almost mm -hmm. every day. Every time I get up in front of a group and speak, I am so nervous. Every time I go, particularly at tri-party meetings, you know, when I sit with the client that I'm going to coach mm -hmm. and his or her boss in a high tower, oh, wow. I get fantastically frightened. So in those situations, sorry, getting a bit logistical here, but so the person you're coaching, why is their boss there as well? Because it's um, important to have a tri-party contract yeah. for the boss or whoever it was that sponsored my client. Yeah to have coaching, they are investing not only resource in the form of money, but they're mm. also investing this person, my client, taking two hours out of the workplace mm -hmm. every, you know, four to six weeks for a year. They often, understandably and deservedly, uh, you know, have a expectation of getting a return on their investment. It's crucial that my clients and I transparently understand what the return on their investment looks like. And it's also important for the person who's investing to understand that what happens between my clients and I is confidential. Mm -hmm. So we have to figure out a way of monitoring what, how, how we get the return on the investment. My client, it's, it's an all, everybody's an adult here, so my client has to understand what their expectation is. And then within that, the tri-party person also has to understand what my client wants out of the contract. So rather than talk about he said, she said, they said, mm -hmm. this said, it's important that we have that conversation together. And they are, I don't know... Hmm what other coaches find in tri-parties. But I always, I even thinking about a tri-party meeting, I always find them really nerve-wracking because they, it's very easy to, for them to be quite parental to the, to the client. And I really work to keep it very adult. It's very hard because the, the client is often very nervous too. Yeah, so wow, that's, so that's a skill of like moderating the power dynamic in a room. <sighs> You've said it very clearly. Absolutely right. Whilst someone has a power dynamic because they're paying you. <laughs> yes. Wow. Um, no, I, I love that. I, I actually really subscribe to the thing that there is no such thing as confidence uh, in the way that people perceive it as a thing that just exists and you get it and then you and it's a conscious effort. Yeah. And I think um, the, the thing that I think is really nice is I think the combination of your openness and tenderness plus energy and fun um, is a type of, type of con confidence that's very um, accessible because people can see that there's tenderness but also are willing to, to gather people. To, you know, I've, I've been to sessions where you've done the speed mentoring where there's a whole load of people there who don't know each other 
And again, that's a whole lot of energies that you have to manage. But with the kind of tenderness and the fun, you manage to bring everyone together, enjoying it, but also in a productive way. Um, Thank you. I love it. Thank you. What is your advice? So you said breathe uh, to people who find themselves in situations where they don't feel innately confident to perform anyway, whether it be in a, like you were saying, in that kind of situation or a meeting. Kind of, do you have kind of top tips for for feeling the fear and doing it anyway? Well, absolutely. You know, Susan Jeffers, when she wrote that book, she probably wrote the best title of a book ever. It's a brilliant title. It's a brilliant title, and it is, it is a very important piece of advice because fear is normal. Stage fright, fear, anticipation, anxiety, trepidation, fear of authority, all of those things and more are completely normal. So the first thing is to honor whatever the feeling is instead of trying to make it go away. Go, oh, okay, I notice that right now I am feeling very threatened by this man who runs an entire region of a global bank. And I'm speaking to him on a conference call on a screen. And he is above me like a god. (laughs) And I am feeling intimidated and threatened. Okay, good. That's the first thing. So honor it. Okay, so that's a cue for me, absolutely, as you just said, to breathe. And to put my body in a place that is open to this man. And to make him 60% of my focus. And 40% is any adjustments that I need to make in my body to focus on him as much as I possibly can. And that... I know sounds simple, but when you're in it, it requires focus. And when I say focus, not only focus with your eyes, but focus with your hands, the cheeks of your backside, (laughs) all the musculature in your back, and just keeping so connected to your breath, almost like you're meditating, except that you're not, because you are 60% of you absolutely focused on the recipient of your communication. Is it comfortable? No. Probably (laughs) the least comfortable thing in the world. But the recipient of that communication will perceive it as comfortable because you are doing everything in your power to make them feel as comfortable as they possibly can feel. And the byproduct of that eventually is that the back muscles on your body will let go. But it will never be comfortable, and it will never be automatic. And I have led a professional life of not only believing that, but practicing it. Because it, it, it doesn't need to become instant for it to be effective. A couple of things that you said there. I love that nerves quite often are inward. So you feel nervous, and so you focus on yourself. And then you think, my palms are sweaty, the this, the 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 the. And the narrative actually isn't about the other person, which is what is lost. 
And really all they want to do is see that someone is listening to them and aware of what they need and is prepared and kind of conscious enough to deliver it. Uh, so I like that idea of starting with a 60%. And really what you were saying, the other 40% is still about the person, but it's about how you can communicate and your body can can be focused on them because there's still part of you that's still over here, not them. Even looking at them is going to leave your, <laughs> your, yourself here. That's it. <laughs> Do you know, something I've learned through coaching those those men on the screen is that they are even more frightened than we are. I'm sure. So scary. It's so scary to be a leader. It's the scariest thing in the world. Mm. It's like it's it's like leading a leading a fantastically huge amount of people in the dark. It's really scary. And and the other thing is and I really really I articulated this the other day to a delightful client. Oh my god, so lovely. Um we're all mammals. You know, we walk on two legs and we have something that other mammals don't have, which is a brain cortex, which allows us to speak. But that doesn't make fear any less complicated than it is, say, for a dog. When we have fear, our adrenaline rises. You talked about sweaty palms, our mouth dries. And a dog, when the doorbell rings, the dog will become frightened and want to protect your house. The dog doesn't know the difference between somebody who is delivering flowers or a thief. Or champagne or all the other gifts or champagne. you get, which I love. <laughs> well deserved. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but a dog doesn't know. Yeah. And, and fear doesn't know. Mm-hmm. Fear doesn't know that actually you're going to go and receive an award or, if, or you're going to go out on a date with somebody fabulous or you're going to speak to 2,000 people. Fear just comes. So you have to soothe it with breath and acknowledging that it's there and I saw something else that you wrote that um fear is part of courage as well you can't have courage without fear which I think is really nice because people I think want to be courageous they want to do big bold things but they don't necessarily always make the link that fear is part of that and it's that feeling of feeling the fear and doing it anyway or feeling that fear and taking in the action anyway and doing the thing with 2,000 people, the conference call. Um, so I thought that was a really lovely way to think about fear as well, that it's actually a component of something that's quite desirable. It's, you know, yeah. I have to say, Zara, it is extremely humbling and an honour to have my words and my beliefs fed back so articulately by you. <laughs> it really is. It's, it's an honour. It's very humbling. Do you have a question that comes time and time again in your coaching sessions? I would say I could say without reserve that every coaching client I have ever had wants confidence. I want to be more confident at this. I want confidence. Confidence. Mm. Every single one. So you're like, it doesn't exist. Move on. (laughs) Just do it anyway. I do at some point in every mm. every client I've ever had, I've said, are you confusing confidence with comfort? Because it's... It's such an interesting relationship, isn't it? Yeah. Because I think um, you get... So I know I know behaviour in myself, which is I really I like to learn. I'm like quite obsessed with learning. But I like to be challenged. 
and then that puts you in a very uncomfortable <laughs> position because you're like oh, I don't know this thing and I want a challenge yeah. but then when I reach that like enlightened bit of confidence in what I'm doing which actually I think is comfort then I start to get bored <laughs> which is a terrible cycle <laughs> it's a completely yeah. understandable cycle yeah of course mm. Um, so yeah. it's interesting that we we think I think people think they want comfort, but I don't think they do. Maybe some people do want comfort. I think people want they they have this fantasy. A lot of people, yeah. Who are these people? All these marvelous yeah, people. <laughs> but 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 I certainly know from from many of the clients that I that I've met and the people that I talk to and after workshops and things, they have a fantasy that that the people who they think are confident, like, like I think a lot of people have fantasies about me that when mm. I stand <laughs> up to talk that I'm really comfortable. Yeah. Uh, this is really easy. I do this with great alacrity and, you know, no muscle in my body is being strained and I didn't stay up half the night <laughs> worried about it the yeah. night before. They have this great fantasy that, that the people that, that, that do this are comfortable with it. It is mm. as easy as going into a jacuzzi. And I think that they want that. They want that ease. And so they need to learn that the people that they think have this great ease and alacrity really don't. They really don't. I, you know, I, I cannot tell you, if you speak to my other half about what a <laughs> cranky cow I am before I go into, uh, you know, any anything that is important and these mm. days almost everything that I do is crucial to me because I love mm. it so much I'm horrible the night before oh I wouldn't I, I I have to live with myself and my poor other half has to tolerate me I'm appalling because I'm so scared mm. and I lie in bed thinking this is going to be the one where I screw up this is going to be the, the thing that doesn't work and I think what we've both come to realize, because to be in love with me for 17 years, <laughs> you know, I think what we both have come to realize is that that's part of the process. Hmm. And that if you try to take that away from me, hmm. it won't work. Um, it reminds me of the Marilyn Monroe quote, if you don't like me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, I didn't yeah. know that quote. Oh, I love that quote. Okay. Because I'm an absolute terror when I'm stressed about something, but I'm like, the good will come after I've done it. But it's part of the process. I think my wife, who is, she is a very wise woman and a very tolerant one. I think she would be, I, 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 I can't remember when we had the conversation, but she said to me, she said, you know, is there a way for you to, to be as good as you are at the work that you do? And not have this anxiety. And I said, no, I don't think there is. <laughs> and she said, no, I think you're right. I think what we have to honor is that you being miserable and really hard to live with and cranky and tearful mm. um, is part of the gift. And I think that's true. Um, have you read Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic? No. It's a fantastic book that I she's, highly recommend. She's Eat, Pray, Love, isn't she? So or, she she wrote Eat, Pray, Love. Yes. And so she's written a book called Big Magic, which is about uh, creativity. Mm. Um, and I interpret creativity in a, in a very broad sense. And I think what you do is definitely creativity because it's making connections, it's bringing out and eliciting this co this kind of confidence or this belief in people's self, etc. But um, she said something that uh, I read it recently, and so it's kind of ticking away in my brain. Um, that there is this myth that she believes that for creativity to happen there must be torment and there must be um, struggle 
Uh, and I and I think a lot of that is because the creative output often is quite hard and people have to come through and stuff. Um, but what I I found something I found very interesting because I definitely I yeah I, I definitely do the crankiness and stuff and there's something big that I want to do and because it's that that feeling you want it and you don't want to mess it up and whatever all this kind of stuff. Um, but she kind of talked about almost tricking yourself into having fun <laughs> during that process and she told a story in her book of Brene Brown uh, who apparently doesn't like writing she finds writing very hard the process of writing a lot of people do find it physically I do, I do as well I find it hard yeah really? I love doing it but it's really hard. yeah exactly and um and so she she was kind of talking and saying you know you don't have to have this torturous like tortured artist feeling and they were kind of discussing quite discussing creativity and what Brene Brown realized was that she uh she loves talking about her concepts and her ideas and finds that comes a lot more naturally than writing does and so she kind of tricked her creativity to not have the torturous time by getting a few of her friends to come to like a beach house or something like paid them for the weekend and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk you through my concepts you're going to listen and take notes and we're, we're just going to have a conversation and I'm going to go and write up those notes and then she, it was a process and she just did it all weekend. And that's how she wrote one of her books to, to make her actually enjoy the creative process. And it almost like a type of trickery. Anyway, I just love that because it reminded me that sometimes how can we find a way around? And sometimes there's not a way, right? Sometimes we have to be a pain in the ass. But I just, I quite love that. As I a, do too. In yeah. fact, thank you, Brené Brown, because... <laughs> I'm totally stealing that because I'm writing a book right now. Brilliant. And it's doing my, it's just doing me in because I, 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 my inner critic is just, it's not on my shoulder. It's pervasive. It's going through my hand, through the pen. If I type, it's on the keyboard, but it's really hard. And I want, I, because that's a great idea. It's a brilliant idea. Brené Brown, you little minx you that's brilliant I, I love that but I love the idea of tricking yourself into so if, you, if you're having a dreadful time with the writing how could you how could you somehow make it if you want to I don't know audio recorder yeah. and transcribe if you want to I don't know go out for a wonderful dinner and sit there and type whatever it is so tricking the the kind of evil creativity demon that's trying to suck all the joy out of this amazing thing you're trying to create and actually make it a fun process that's brilliant, Zara. I agree. Can I ask you about your book? Yeah. Tell me. Um, <laughs> I've got sick to my stomach. Is it a labour of love? It is an absolute labour of love. And it came out of, really, five years ago, somebody, a, a gorgeous young man who was on one of my workshops came up to me and he went, is there a book about this? And I went, ah. This is this is a thousand books. This is this is my life. This no, there isn't. I, there are lots. I can give you, you know. I can spill. Give me a piece of paper, and I'll write down all the books that I've read that have led me to this place. But it's also me and the what I've done. So I thought, you know, I've got. I really do need to write a book, and um, and want to write a book. And mm-hmm. when I was younger, young, a lot younger. I used to love to write. I wrote purely for the joy of writing and thought I was the bee's knees and became the sort of poet laureate of my family when I was 10, you know, um, and loved it. It was such a great cathartic thing. And I, and I know that in me there is a writer. I know that. 
And I, I there's a great writing coach who I've spent a lot of time with and hope to spend more time with, a woman called Jackie Holder. She's brilliant. And she has really, through working with her, has really made me feel like a, a writer. I have a treatment for the book. I've written the treatment. I've, I've sent it to one publisher who I never heard back from. So, of course, the world collapsed again and I was back in Hollywood failing. Um, I've had some really nice feedback from the few people that I've, and nice but, and critical mm-hmm. and very constructively so. Um, has Michael I, read your treatment? No, Michael has not. He has not! No, Why not? That's a good, because it's not good enough to get Send it to, to Michael. Michael, stop it. <laughs> He'll be your critical cheerleader. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That is a fair challenge. I would okay, do that. Brilliant. I would do that. Am I allowed to work on it just a little bit more? No. I say? No? Just okay. send it. Say it's work in progress. Yeah. <laughs> can you believe I'm trying to boss you around? You, you know yes, what I'm doing. Yes, <laughs> I can. And I like it very much. <laughs> um, I can I ask what it's about or is that still? Yeah. Yeah. No. Of course. Um it is about confidence and it really is a uh it's a book about my life and how i learned what i teach and encouraging my reader to be um not have to be my age and learn what i've learned through how i've learned it but to learn it now physically so how much of it is um life story versus um kind of tasks or things for people to do it's half and half brilliant so so that's do you know what i find the more of me that is in something the more daunting it is because you're like not only is your your creative output but you're also like oh i'm putting myself in it but then it's always better but you are so right about both of those things Mm. that it is i know it's better and the the people who've read my treatment have all said that that they want more you know they Mm. want more vulnerability like really really you want more what do you want me to tear my heart out just throw it on the piece of paper what do you say so they want more vulnerable more of my voice you know and i think that's the only way and yeah you're right you you've just absolutely beautifully so clearly articulated my feelings that as 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 this becomes more real it's becoming more frightening i'm excited Great. <laughs> you're like I'm not. It's <laughs> awful. And you're gonna you're gonna do some creative trickery, and you'll you'll enjoy it in part. I, I take that challenge. Yeah. I really do. You have thrown down probably the most delicious gauntlet that anyone mm. has ever thrown me in, in, <laughs> in regards to this book. No offense, Jackie, but um, yeah, that's a good challenge. I like it. And so I suppose, just conscious of time, you probably want to have some dinner soon. <laughs> uh, my, my wife said she would keep it warm for me. Yeah, I know. I've got, I've also Tell got her. I've got food at home. On the co- <laughs> I was like, I'll be back late, but please, please cook for me. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, didn't <say. laughs> Um, so you have thought of someone to nominate. So yes. the so this podcast. Um, I'm I'm particularly interested in people who lift other people up. That's a a behaviour that I just want to see more of, and um, which is why I wanted to start doing it. And so I'd love to hear, Dina, who you would like to shine a light on. It was really tough because I am exposed, especially this year, Bloom, to so many powerful, wonderful, shining stars. I mean, 
basically every woman that I have met at Bloom I'd like to put forward. Um, and I mean that. I'm not being glib. I really mm. mean that. I think Bloom is a piece of utopia in a crazy, mad, dark, torn-up world. I really do. Mm. And so I'm not going to choose a Bloom woman because that would be too hard. But I'm going to choose a phenomenal young woman who I know called Maddie Warren, who, if you, on Instagram, she's uh, queen of dialysis. She is uh, a young woman who has, uh, in childhood, had terrible kidney disease and faced death and didn't die, thanks to medicine, but didn't want to live a life going to hospital for dialysis treatment, and she self-dialysizes. She is a, she jumps out of airplanes f for fun. It's just, I have kidneys that work, and I would no way do that. I'm like whatever the opposite of an <laughs> adrenaline junkie is. Oh. Very cautious, Carol. Yeah, snap. <laughs> My my only adrenaline sport is speaking in public. That, that's just, and that's a big one. Which is a big one. It is a big one. But, that, but I certainly wouldn't jump out of an airplane. But she does joyously and has won. She's on a team. She wins awards for formations in the sky. She ran the, the, the charity part of Goldman Sachs and was incredibly successful doing that. Basically, and now she is, has started a company to promote self-dialysis with kidney patients. And speaks to people who are kidney patients inspirationally to get them to lead independent lives. And she's a remarkable little packet of sunshine. She is, and she is changing the world for people who really medical science wants to make into victims. And she is the polar opposite of a victim, as are many of the people who've been affected by her work. So uh, absolutely Warren. incredible. And you mentioned earlier, and to kind of illustrate, so each night she has she has dialysis at home, at home, and she does it herself, which is just amazing. Because lots of people, obviously, it's such a a big part of people's lives having to be on dialysis. Yet she's kind of empowered herself, and she's empowering other people, which is amazing. I know, and and and, and it gets better than that, even because she uh, when she left Goldman Sachs. Uh, after a really phenomenal and and very rapid rise there, she really wanted to live in the countryside. And so she does now. She rented a little place in the country with her dialysis machine. You know, and she's in the countryside leading the life that she wants to lead. And I, I find that so inspirational. And she's young and... and I mean, not that if she was older, it would be any less impressive, but it's incredible. Do you have a bit of advice that you live by? Oh. Big question. <laughs> That's a phenomenal question. A bit of advice that I live by. Or a mantra. When I was a, a very little girl, I was three, I think, and I don't know if I remember this, or if my mother just told it to me so many times that I think I remember it. But it was really cold, freezing cold. We were in New York where I was born, 
and we were walking and I was really cold and I was complaining that it was really cold and I think I was even crying. And my mother lifted me up and opened the bottom of her coat and buttoned me up so that I was in her coat but my head was sticking <laughs> out and she lifted me up so I was on her feet and walked lobbing along the street of New York right near Greenwich Village, right near um, Washington Square Park in Greenwich Village. And I started to laugh and I mean laugh like belly laugh laugh and I went warm in my body and felt so happy and unbuttoned myself from her coat and stopped in front of her and said, I finally figured it out. Hmm. And she said, what, what did you figure out? I figured out, I said, that if you are not laughing, you are wasting your time. And that's where your value of fun comes from. And that is where my value of fun comes from. And that is what I truly believe. And I don't mean laughing, like I said earlier, as a veneer. I mean enjoying it. Enjoying the people that you're with. Enjoying the work that you are doing. Enjoying the food that you are eating. Enjoying the challenge that you are in. It is so important. It's so short. This little life is ridiculously short. And the older you get, the faster it goes. It's just such a ridiculous waste of the most precious gift to not enjoy it. So my final question. Yeah. <laughs> and let you get home to your dinner. Because yeah. your questions are so easy. Yeah, so so. I'll ask an easy one. <laughs> so I, I I know the answer. It's your book. Um, what the kind of what's you excited about next? No, I'm not excited about my book. I would love to be excited about it. <laughs> you I'm will not, be. I'm, I'm, That's I'm, I'm scared of my book. Um, and I want to be excited about it. I'm not saying this because you're a part of Bloom, but I am going to talk about the gift that I have received from Bloom. Bloom getting involved, as involved as I have been this year, has reawakened my passion for my work. And it's, and very specifically has reawakened my passion for reconciling the gap that dominates the workplace between women and men. It has re-engaged me with being passionate about that. And it has got me very excited about a deeper understanding of a new world. That excites me. And it has, it has, it has affected my work beyond the work that I've done with Bloom. It affects every time I sit down with a client of either gender. And it has made me, it has refreshed hope that in my lifetime there will be a fundamental shift in the way that women and men run. And I think for me the promise of equality, the promise in it for men is becoming clearer to them. And that has been a dream that I have held for 
probably 20 years for men, because I can see how victimized men are by alpha culture. I, they sit opposite me in private rooms and have done for 30 years. I can see it. They've as good as said it to me. And through many of the men that I've encountered at Bloom, they have said it before I have. So the thing that excites me the most is true equality before I die. I would just love to see that. And in this coming year, I look forward to doing more work towards that. I look forward to partnering with you to do that. Thank Thank you you. so much, Dina. This has been an absolute joy. I have no idea how I'm going to cut anything out. (laughs) I mean, it's about three hours long. (laughs) But it's all brilliant. (laughs) I have to tell you, I've been interviewed several times in my life. I have thoroughly loved this. It's been so thought-provoking. that almost, I mean, there were times where I thought, I, I, I wish I'd had a pen, some of the things that you said. You bring such tender wisdom to the, to the proposition. You bring such a beautiful way of reframing and of summarizing. It's a gift to be interviewed by you. Thank you so much. I'm blushing. I'm absolutely blushing. And don't cut that bit out. I know, I was... <laughs> if you cut that bit out, you're dead! <laughs> Just switch off when I'm listening. Well, that's it! I'm erasing this from my podcast Spotify thing. (laughs) Make sure you're subscribed. (laughs) I am subscribed. Thank you, Dean. And thank you for those incredibly kind words. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. Drop me a message. Let me know what you liked or if there's anything you'd like to hear more about or anyone you'd like to hear from. And I'd be so grateful if you could leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you.